Hello and welcome to Written in Uncertainty, an Elder Scrolls podcast sat firmly in the grey maybe of Tamriel, and proud member of the Robots Radio podcast network. My name is Aramithius, and I am now well and truly back. I've tried to keep things running smoothly over the past few weeks, but that was only possible because I could wrestle the hospital Wi-Fi into compliance to get the last two episodes out to you. I am now out of hospital, and I'm on the mend, and a little more bionic, which is moderately appropriate for this episode, I guess. I just wanted to start by saying thank you to everyone who's wished me well over the past few weeks, and the support that I've had has been fantastic, particularly from the Lawseekers Guild. Go and find that podcast and their Discord server, they are lovely people. Thank you, Cash, for keeping a close eye on me, and thank you to everyone else in the Guild for helping keep me occupied and less bored while I was waiting around for test results in a hospital bed. Today I'm discussing a mysterious character, one who has been working behind the scenes of Mundus in general and Morrowind in particular for millennia and bringing change to the world and hopefully, maybe, keeping it on a steady course. Or he could simply be a liar who wanted to maintain his godhood whatever the cost. Today we're asking, who is Sophocell? As usual, I need to point out that this is my own understanding of who Sothisil is and not the whole truth in the matter. I certainly can't get to covering all of the different perspectives that this character brings out in people and have a reasonable length podcast. So please just let me and everyone else know what you think about him in the comments wherever you find this episode on the Original Uncertainty Discord or in an email to me at writteninuncertaintypodcast at gmail.com. And also, if you wanted to check out the notes that I make for these episodes, see where I'm getting the ideas that I'm talking to you about from, and a full list of all my sources, and so on, then you can become my patron at patreon.com forward slash writteninuncertainty. And finally, just to finish off all the pimping out, you can find a text version of this podcast in a blog post on writteninuncertainty.com so you can check all the references that I'm pulling from there and you can hunt down all of the sources make up your own mind on things so anyway to Sothisil Sothisil was one of the members of the Dunmurray Tribunal three Kaima at the time who tapped the heart of Lorcan in the first era to make themselves gods Sothisil was the brains behind this, according to Almalexia, and worked out precisely how to use the Heart of Lokan to that end. How he got to the point of being on the ruling Chimeri Council and into his political situation is a bit of a mystery, particularly if you compare it to Vivek's rise. He was a member of House Sotha, whose stronghold was destroyed by Merun's Dagon. Sothisil was the sole survivor of the attack, if we're to believe one of his clockwork apostles, and then rescued by Vivek. This apparently happened before either of them became gods, and potentially also before either of them came to any sort of political prominence. It feels quite weird for a street urchin in Mournhold and a scion of a decimated house to become the advisors to the Horde tour, but that's the story we have. It's particularly odd if you look at the various locations 
that they're supposed to have come from. Vec was from Mournhold, which was on mainland Morrowind. And Ald Sotha, if we're to believe the tales that we get told in The Elder Scrolls 3, was on Vardenfell. There's actually a shrine to Merun's Dagon commemorating, so to speak, the attack. And it's not far from where Vivek City is at the point at that point in Morrowind's history. So quite what Vivek was doing there, I have no clue. And we have even less clue about how Sothasil managed to survive and how he managed to rise to prominence than what we do about Vivek. Perhaps appropriately then, Sothasil fulfills the role of mystery in the tribunal, contrasted with mastery for Vivek and mercy for Amalexia, and is anticipated by Azura. This puts Syl in the place of the in-between, the maybe, which we'll get to a bit later, and it's also the now. He has also, like his anticipation, taken his role in shaping the Dunmer people. He was the one who persuaded the Dunmer to accept their changed skin after he figured out how to use Kagranak's tools, for example. To quote Vivek's text, The Battle of Red Mountain, on this, it says this, the Dunmer were at first afraid of their new faces, but Sothasil spoke to them, saying that it was not a curse but a blessing, a sign of their changed natures, and sign of the special favour they might enjoy as new Mer, no longer barbarians trembling before ghosts and spirits, but civilised Mer, speaking directly to their immortal friends and patrons, the three faces of the tribunal. And that same text, that's putting Sothasil as the one being positive and forward-thinking, about the change as the one who was talking back to Azura after she cursed them to become the Dunmer, if you believe Vivek's account. It's kind of interesting that he's taking that sort of a role here, given the viewpoints that he puts across in the Elder Scrolls Online, that Mundus is a place under threat that needs to be shored up. It's the language that gets used when he talks back to Azura, and in the that passage are all quite positive, and this is going to be wonderful, and we're going to be progressive and not fickle like you, and all sorts of other more optimistic things. Although he does seem to be one of the few people in the Elder Scrolls as a whole who is interested in progress and moving forward as well in terms of developing things and looking into things, he's called the Tinkerer by tongues of people. So it, so it fits, I guess, but given particularly what we see in the Elder Scrolls Online, I have a hard job reconciling that optimism with the kind of attitude that he has in that game. And, but, that optimism would also potentially account for why he accepted the change to be a Dunmer in its entirety, rather than rejecting it or partly taking it on, like we see with Almalexia and Vivek. Almalexia stays the gold of the Kaima, and Vivek is a mixture of the two. Sothasil kind of openly embraces the whole thing and says, I'm going to be a Dunmer now, I'm going to be part of the future. His role as Mystery in the Tribunal almost feels at odds with that Elder Scrolls Online presentation, which, by the way, I'm going to be referencing a lot, if you hadn't guessed. We'll get to precisely what that presentation is later, but for now, I think the idea of Mystery links to his being the anticipation of Azura, being in the Twilight, and that idea of being both and none in the in-between space. 
This is something that we see in Vivek's character as well, but it's a different type of maybe an uncertainty and twilight and changing from one thing to another with Sothasil. It's not seen as being both at once, but being something of transition. As a member of the Tribunal, I think Set is a little bit of a puzzle in how we've seen him portrayed. His followers almost seem to be monolatristic, that is, taking one god as the supreme but acknowledging the existence of the others. They acknowledge Vec and Am, but they only consider Set to be worthy of worship. You talk to the Clockwork Apostles and they don't worship three, they worship one. Set himself, however, doesn't really seem to much care for divinity now that he actually has it. Given his deterministic view, it feels like he almost did what he did to Nerevar and the rest of the Tribunal because he considered it necessary or some sort of consequence. He is willing to be pretty much anything that he believes is required for the survival of Nern, if we believe what he says in ESO, particularly this, to quote. I am whatever the people need me to be, a guardian, an oppressor, for some too distant, for others too meddlesome. I am the canvas upon which they paint their dreams and resentments, a vessel for their hopes and doubts, a mirror, nothing more. From that, as I say, he seems to be willing to be anything, which makes me wonder, given the presentation that we have in ESO. It's not very godlike, he's far more of an engrossed tinkerer and a reasonably powerful mage than a divine engineer, in my view. You don't see him kind of sketching out ground plans for the cosmos so much. I don't see the character that we have in the Elder Scrolls Online as one willing to set up the infrastructure of his own cult either, unless there's more to him and the cult than we see in the games. The quote that you just heard shows that there's a range of reactions to him almost independent of what he actually does. He's also ready to doubt his divinity in a way that seems almost antithetical to the Tribunal Temple. He openly says that he does not call himself a god in the Elder Scrolls Online, and in the unlicensed text Sothasil's Life's Words, he says he is a god, quote, as surely as others are. That is a nod to the Tribunal as a whole, but I also think there's more to it than that. Vivek's 36 lessons present the notion of the only true god, I, which Set could be referencing here. So everyone is potentially a god, and so Sothasil is potentially a god too. I think that's where it's potentially going, because some of the little nuggets that we see in his cult's writings, particularly in the Truth and Sequence, say that kind of thing about the second Nern, which is to come from the first. If we look at that text for just a second and quote from volume one, our lessers know the source as two forms, Anu and Padme, but this binary is without merit. One of Lokan's great lies, meant to sunder us from the truth of a Newark unity. Our father, Sothasil, would have us know the truth. There is no Padme. Padme is the absence of value. The lack. A ghost vanishes at first light. A nothing. There is only Anu, sundered and known by many names, possessing many faces. The One. Now, to me, this sounds a lot like the acknowledgement that Anu is the universe, that the interplay that went on between Anu and Padme is in fact going on inside Anu's dream. This gets mentioned in 
Sermon 35 of the 36 Lessons, where, to quote, This is clearly attested by Anu and his double, which love knows never really happened. These hint at the possibility that Anu is in fact all of the universe, and this ties back to the idea of the Amaranth. In brief, the Amaranth is the idea that Anu is dreaming or hallucinating the whole universe of the Elder Scrolls, which is caused by a form of deep sensory deprivation because of his grief at Nier's death. I have done a whole podcast on the Amaranth if you want a more detailed discussion of what it is and how it works, check that out. But the key thing here is that as Set is aware of that reality, he may be ready to consider the potential divinity or potential for transcendence in everyone on Nern. So he is a god as surely as others are, thinking that he's part of everyone. And while that may be the ultimate reality that Sophocle is aware of, his cult seems to be very into improving Nern, making it better than it currently is, and into what they call Nern ensuing, which is contrasted with the flawed Nern prior. This is not the same thing as the Amaranth, which is creating a whole new world, but it's making the current world into something new, a rebirth through the medium of the Clockwork City. The city in itself appears to be a model for Nern. However, it's more than a model. If we listen to Almalexia, it's potentially a tool for the transformation of Nern. In creating the Clockwork City, Sothosil has a tool to manipulate in order to affect change in the world at large. This is a principle that's part of several esoteric and magical traditions in the world. The idea of as above, so below. That you have something that is the case in one place and it affects the, ne- the other place. The best example of this that we have in popular culture is a voodoo doll. That you make a doll in the likeness of someone and then you break that doll and it will then break the person who it represents. It's possible that in changing the Clockwork City, Sophocle can work change on Mundus in a similar way. This is the same way that the Aeliads modelled the White Gold Tower after the Wheel and Tower model of the Arabis, that the Numantia Intercept calls a, quote, sympathetic mega-fetish. Fetish in this sense meaning a thing that symbolises something else, like the voodoo doll. This isn't actually attested anywhere explicitly, but I think it's certainly a possibility. It also possibly exists as an idea in-universe too. Karlovac Townway's historical fiction called 2920, The Last Year of the First Era, ends on this note, to quote, In the smoky catacombs beneath the city where Sothosil forged the future with his arcane clockwork apparatus, something unforeseen happened. An oily bubble seeped from a long, trusted gear and popped. Immediately, the wizard's attention was drawn to it and to the chain that tiny action triggered. A pipe shifted half an inch to the left. A tread skipped. A coil rewound itself and began spinning in a counter-direction. A piston that had been thrusting left-right, left-right for millennia suddenly began shifting right-left. Nothing broke, but everything changed. The machine here is clearly responding to the change of the era and adapting, so we have some sort of feedback loop between the Clockwork City and Nern as a whole, if this is what's actually happening, which 
to be fair, you can debate because this is historical fiction. It could be artistic floristers on Townways part. So there is that, but it's, it's an interesting possibility. However, I don't really know, just to bring another counterpoint to this, how it fits in with what we see in Elder Scrolls Legends. In that game, Sothasil has built a replica of Lorcan's heart, complete with replica Dwemer tools to manipulate it. Quite why he would do that, I'm not really sure. Part of me is tempted to just chalk it up to lazy writing on the developer's part, but anyway. Um, given that the Clockwork City is a model of Nern as a whole, and Legends happened after the Elder Scrolls 3, why is there a Clart of Lorcan still there? Why does it is it still present after the Nereverine has hit it with the to, with Kakranak's tools? Is it possible then that the heart is not destroyed after all, and that Sothasil is building what is actually there, or maybe he wants to have a world as he would want it to be? I'm not sure that something that reacts to the world as it is and both affects the world at the same time entirely fits either of those answers or maybe I'm just overthinking it. Maybe the Clockwork City was simply meant to replicate Nern at the point it was built and it hasn't or can't adjust to being without Lorcan's heart as part of it. Although it's possibly also a signal that Lorcan's heart isn't really destroyed although the wording in Legends does say destroyed when you play through that particular part of the game, so it's a little vague. And there's also part of me that can't help but think of Yorgmoth, the big bad for much of the Magic Gathering. He's quite a large part of that universe for several cycles of that card game, and is a focus of several of the novels as well. Um, in that universe, Yorgmoth started as a doctor who was essentially treating a form of magical cancer, but his ultimate solution to cure people of it is to entirely transform sentient beings into something else. He also dwells in the middle of a plane called Phyrexia, which is a hybrid of natural and artificial beings, and he puts it into a content cycle of improvement, so to speak, and the term is used very advisedly there. Whether Phyrexians are an improvement on the original is, yeah, something that's very heavily implied not to be the case in the games. Uh, the only real difference between what Sothasil and Yorgmoth are doing seems to be that Yorgmoth is an expansionist, whereas that's an integral part of why Phyrexia is so threatening. It's an, an attempt at forced conversion on the world. But apart from that, I don't think there's that much to actually separate them. They are both especially keen on machines as distinct from natural things as well, and potentially a fusion of the two. We don't see too much in the way of kind of bionic stuff from Sophocell, but there's enough about him that that feels almost like a logical conclusion, and if you look at how he is when you see his corpse in the Elder Scrolls 3, he's kind of plugged into Clockwork City, he's jacking himself into a computer, which seems, again, almost reminiscent of trying to fuse the mechanical and the physical, trying to infuse the electronics or whatever it is with spirit. So that, just a little side note there, that I 
thought was particularly interesting. One element where they differ though is that machinery and gears echo some other themes within Sothisil's character and there's a lot of him that's deterministic and certain and things must be the way that they are. He explicitly claims that his actions are to quote locked in time and determine and again to quote determined by chains of action and consequence. This is despite numerous references that his followers make to possibility and potential at the heart of what Sothisil does and Luciano Polo claims that Set prepares for every possibility. Now this seems really quite contradictory to me. I mean, why prepare for everything if everything is deterministic? Yet surely if you can work out what's going to happen, you don't need to prepare for everything else either. I think this is possibly a nod to chaos theory. That is that there are deterministic systems which have small differences in how they start and then produce radically different results as part of those small differences. Everything is still cause and effect, can still be worked out, but thanks to the differences in the initial conditions, you then have feedback loops and other mechanics. True prediction of what's going to happen is pretty much impossible. So if Sofacil views the world in those terms, he still needs to prepare for many different eventualities. So given that outlook, and the way that he talks about maybe as something to cherish in the Elder Scrolls Online, there's a part of me that thinks that he regrets his level of knowledge. He sees everything in deterministic terms, but wants what he thinks to be impossible, the maybe. It sounds like he wants ignorance and maybe innocence again. When you take that with his comments about himself and Vivek being bound together by regret, I would then read into that that Set regrets killing Nerevar. Presenting it as inevitable is also a way of absolving himself from guilt, or at least trying, as he has no agency in the matter if he's simply the result of a chain of consequence and therefore can't be blamed for it. But if he still wants the maybe, then surely he does still regret it. As well as determinism, the focus on machines means that Set is typically more materialistic than the other trains. He's very focused on this world and preserving this world. He knows about the deeper realities of Mundus better than most characters, if not all of them, but he claimed to quote that he only sees unsteady walls when asked about moving beyond cause and effect when he talks to you about the prisoner stuff. Despite being immensely powerful, he's not able to move beyond those limits of the material or to move beyond his own nature and become a prisoner who can then dictate the course of a prophesied event. He knows what the reality of a situation is, but is unable to escape it, which is in a way quite tragic. I've also seen him associated with memory by several people in the fanbase, and the location of the Clockwork City mirrors this quite explicitly. Mournhold is built on Old Mournhold, which is built on a Dwemer ruin, which is built on a Daedric ruin. This maps into how memories work in some ways. The present is likewise built on the past and is therefore connected to what you were and how you think you were as part of a way of composing who you are. And therefore it's likely not a coincidence that the lower levels of 
of Mournhold are flooded as a character in the Elder Scrolls Online explicitly links water to memory. The city of Mournhold itself replicates the whole design of how we experience things and so is a perfect place to house the clockwork city which is inhabited by someone who is explicitly linked to memory and its processing. I think that evolution of the city and the presentation of moving forward based on the foundations of what you were and building up and up and up so to speak kind of exemplifies Sophocles' goal. It almost seems to be transhumanist to use a term that's probably the closest thing we're going to get. While he is incapable of moving beyond Mundus, he is very focused on making the current one better and potentially moving it to being something else than an ensuing, transforming the people and the world in the process of that. It feels a bit like the ship of Theseus problem, so to speak, in that if you change enough about the world, is it still going to be the same world afterwards? The ship of Theseus problem, just to quickly summarise, is the idea that if you replace every single board over time on a ship and then replace the sails, replace all the rigging, replace absolutely everything, at what point does it become a new ship? Because eventually you're just going to wind up with new parts rather than and nothing of the old ship is going to remain. So this is possibly something that Sophocle is trying to do with Mundus. And in that, he's possibly sharing at least part of what seems to be an implied goal of the Sijic Order. The text, The Old Ways, has this particular perspective on divinity, to quote. The Daedra and gods to whom the common people turn are no more than the spirits of superior men and women whose power and passion granted them great influence in the afterworld. We don't know for sure how much Sothosil shares the Sijic's philosophy, but he definitely spent some time on Artaeum. If you believe Karlovac Townway, he was a tutor with the Order. It certainly seems possible that, given what we talked about earlier with his thoughts on his own godhood, he may share a similar perspective to this. So it's possible that he could be into pushing people and the world into the beyond to have the power and influence that they need to evolve and become something that will cope with whatever the new reality will throw at them. However, he only really seems interested in the big picture, so to speak. While he says himself that some may consider him too meddlesome, when you speak to the Clockwork Apostles and just take in the overall atmosphere of the Clockwork City, the overwhelming impression is that he is more absent than present and not really trying to drive the individuals anywhere. So I think it's likely that he's more fussed about the overall state of Nern rather than what individuals are up to and how individuals are faring. To back this up, the book Unveiling the Clockwork Apostles describes the relationship between Sothsil and his cult as rather like needy students with a particularly distant teacher. Sill is trying to get his apostles to build things, to experiment and promote different ideas, picking up on what he sees as the best ideas possibly and then leading them forward. This essentially feels like he's trying to run an R&D department to collect all possible good ideas and make use of them for his project on Nern, which, according to himself, 
is reinforcing the, to quote, unsteady walls that is Mundus. If this is true, then he, like Vivek, sees people as a means rather than an end in themselves. And that's about all I have to say about Sothisil for now. Myrrh, God, and aiming to be something beyond both. He feels like the most well-intentioned, or at least the most self-aware of the tribunal, but he remains inscrutable as well as approachable, and constantly looking at the horizon more than any other character in the Elder Scrolls. Maybe that's what he wants, though. To be able to deal with people on a more impersonal level, cutting himself off from them, feels like a good way to achieve that. If he has to screw someone over in order to save everyone else, then better not have that emotional connection. He's had that once with Nerevar, and it probably ended badly, and he may well still feel guilty about it. Sothisil does seem like one of the more logical and sympathetic of the Tribunal, but he's also the one most likely to treat people like cogs in a machine. And I think this is probably best summed up in Sothisil's last words, in that he declares that he is the Clockwork City's, to quote, only citizen. And while that may be a little outdated, given that we have teeming inhabitants in the Clockwork City in the Elder Scrolls Online, if that's still the same attitude, because that text was possibly written by a developer, then it underscores the fact that never mind that all the apostles live there and all the other people live there, they don't have a say in what goes on in the city. Set's word is law, and he is controlled by the grinding of destiny as much as everyone else. He's the only one who has much of a say in how the city is determined and how it runs. Everyone else is just there running the thing and not choosing how it goes, which frankly is possibly more scary than being controlled by a tyrant. If you die or something bad happens to you, Set is likely to shrug his shoulders and say, well, that's the way it was going to turn out anyway. There's no negotiating with fate, and so I don't think there's likely to be any way to negotiate with Sothisil. Apologies for the slight delay in getting everything out this week if you're listening to this around the time of release. I'm still mildly shattered from a stay in hospital last week. And it also means that I'm a little behind on my reviews. My thanks to Alika76. It's great to know that you're enjoying the show. And thanks ever so much to Arcanir, Agelos, Lotus of Doom and Promethean at the Tales of Tamriel podcast, who originally put Alakai on my trail. I've also had a review from Disaster Dill, who says that I'm a great listen for the Elder Scrolls lore, which I'm really glad that you're enjoying the podcast, and I will carry on making content for all of you for as long as I can. I also had a lovely email from Troy Allen, who says that this podcast has been helping them get into the Elder Scrolls lore over the past year. I'm really glad that you enjoy the podcast, Troy, and thanks for your kind words while I was on hiatus. I'm glad to know that people have been enjoying this podcast, even while I've been having a break. No new news on patrons for this week, just a note to say that if you enjoy this content and want to get it before everyone else, as well as access to all the notes that I make ahead of this show, and possibly influence the direction of the episodes, head over to patreon.com forward slash written in uncertainty. 
or if you just want to give me a little one-off thank you I've also got an account with Kofi so head over to kofi.com forward slash Aramithius that's ko-fi.com forward slash Aramithius and just drop a quick tip in the jar this has been a perfect time for me to get behind on everything because it's also been a really busy time for the Robots Radio Network, which has been adding even more shows to it. We now have the Cryptid Cast, which looks at the inspiration behind various different fictional creatures. There's a different creature featured every week as to where all and looks at where all the mythical origins and inspirations for those have come from. And Robots is also launching the Cyberpunk Lorecast which is looking at the world of Cyberpunk 2077 ahead of that release. And that's all the news for this week. Join me next week for a look at the final portion of the monomyth, which is the Murray tale, the heart of the world. And after that, we will finish our look at the tribunal with a dive into who and what Almalexia is. And until then, this podcast remains a letter written in uncertainty. You've been listening to Written in Uncertainty, a podcast written and presented by Aramithius, with some kind editorial help from Cyfree. The music for this podcast has been kindly provided by Jan Glembotsky and Jeremy Saw. Check out Jan's work at SoundCloud under Songs from the Lost Land, and Jeremy's Northern Diaries is available for purchase and on YouTube. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. Should introduce myself. Um, I'm Corin Black. A humble half-demon, and folks around Baltimore call me the Devil's Runt. Here we go, finally moving again. How do you feel about methamphetamines? You know, Devil's Blood don't make you a devil. Under the Shroud. Fantasy, noir, and horror from Baltimore's sin-soaked streets. Find creator Ian Humphrey on Twitter at FictionalIan. Hey. Hi. Do you enjoy being optimistic about bad movies? Or do you enjoy at least trying to figure out where someone worked really hard on a bad movie? Well, we've got the podcast for you. New to Robots Radio, we represent Fresh Tomatoes, the movie podcast. Each week, we look at two movies that did really badly critically, but we try to find the good in them. And we have segments such as What Could Have Saved It? and Would You Watch It Again? If you're there on a Saturday night, you want to watch a bad movie, but you're not sure if it's like good bad or bad bad, or if you should even bother, give us a listen. You can find us on Robots Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Please come and say hi. We love you already. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. The definition of a cryptid is an animal that has been claimed to exist, but never proven to exist. As we binged our favorite Netflix series and slayed our toughest bosses in a video game, we began to wonder about these creatures that appeared and stoked our imagination. What was the inspiration for the Demogorgon or the Dementor? Well, my name is Dave, and with my co-host Austin, we bring you the Cryptocast. Every other Wednesday, we will bring you some information about our favorite modern cryptid. From TV to movies to video games, we explore nerd culture through the lens of extensively suspicious knowledge in cryptozoology. Find us on your favorite podcast service under the name The Cryptocast. Follow us on social media at the underscore cryptidcast. Come join the growing community of cryptomania.